This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Good morning, Crossroads at Montgomery. How are you? So about 10 years ago that I find myself planning a trip to New York City. I'm 20 years old, and I have never been to New York City in my life. And my friends catching this said, oh, wait, 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 Nick. You're pretty sheltered, and you're pretty wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Uh, so what's your plan for going to New York City? I was like, you know, get to know a few people, make some friends. I said, no, 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 Nick. We, that's not what New York City's for. We don't go there and just meet some people and get to know people. I said, no, it'll be fine. We'll go. Um, so they tried to prepare me for this trip. And I said, guys, it's cool. Like, I watched Elf at least three times. I know <laughs> what to expect, right? I'm not going to eat the gum. It's all good. So we show up. And, and true enough, there's, like, all these people, like, selling things on every single corner. There's people doing, like, robotic dances and um, really, really wild. But there was this one lady in particular that we passed, and she's right outside the McDonald's. And she says, please, sir, please, $2 for some chicken nuggets. I said, what? we get the 20 piece for $5? Well, let's go. Meanwhile, my friends at this point disown me, and they're over here. I'm now talking with this lady, asking why she needs it. She says she's down on luck, she's poor. My friends are kind of over here giving me some side eye, like, mmm. And so I go into the McDonald's with her, and I say, all right, let's do this. Let's get you a 20-piece chicken nugget. You know, my friends at this point have left me. They have disowned me. They are somewhere else. And so I come out of the McDonald's, and they were far enough away that they could keep their eye on me because they weren't going to let me go. Um, but I had no clue where they were. So they came and found me, and then we come back. And then true like to New York, we, were, we went, and then we figured out we had to come back and turn around. And, like, so we come back to the same McDonald's. And guess who's outside? Not five minutes later. Five minutes, I said, lady. Now I'm giving her some side eye, like, whoa. I just, we just, 20 piece chicken nugget meal. Well, she conveniently could not hear me at this point and chose not to listen. And my friends were like, come on, let's go. And at that point, at that point, the phrase going through my head was, the poor will always be with you. And I was kind of upset because I gave her money to help her, and I thought she was poor, and I thought she was out of luck, but it seemed like I was being used. And so this phrase rung throughout my head, the poor will always be with you, and I thought about it in terms of maybe I should just not care. Maybe it would be easier if they're always just going to be among us. Maybe I should just not care. And so over the last 10 years, I have enjoyed studying this phrase, studying, studying the poor, studying the Bible, what the Bible has to say about it, and living it out. And I just want to share with you some of my insights that I've had over the last 10 years about why I think the poor will always be with us. And do we have PowerPoint? There we go. All right. Um, so the phrase, most of you know the phrase, the poor will always be with you. A lot of us think Jesus was the one that said it, right? So he did say it, but he wasn't the first to say it. When Jesus says it, you can read this in Mark 14, uh, John chapter 12. Um, he's sitting, he's relaxing, reclining with his disciples. And 
this woman comes in with this alabaster jar full of perfume and she smashes it and she breaks it out and she washes Jesus' feet, covers Jesus' feet with this perfume. This perfume was the equivalent of about $50,000 today. So the disciples are like, whoa, that's like a year's worth of money right there. And Judas is like, hey, man, we could you sell that instead of using it for your feet and we could go help the poor. And Jesus says, oh, the poor you'll always have. This is how I view him saying it. The poor you'll always have, but me you won't have so much longer. He was about to go leave them and go die on the cross. So that's how I view that happening. Like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But when we see where that phrase comes from, that scene was actually going very differently. When Jesus looked up at them, it wasn't like, oh, the poor you always have with you. He actually probably did one of these like, um, the poor, oh, they'll always be here. But me, not so much. And the disciples in that moment instantly knew what he was talking about. It was almost a rebuke to the disciples when he said that. And more so Judas. Judas was the one that was saying this, and I don't think his motives were pure at all for what he wanted to do. I think he wanted to look charitable without being actually charitable of heart. So where does the phrase come from? The poor will always be with you. In order to find, we have to go back all the way to Deuteronomy. If you have a copy of scriptures, I'm going to post it up here. If you have a copy of scriptures, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And I'm going to... Could you advance that for me? Thanks. 15, chapter 15. This is really, really cool. So in Deuteronomy, God's telling them how they should live. And he writes out this, writes out this law about debt. It's so cool. So, I'm, so let's read along. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. Guys, this sounds amazing. Like, can we institute that here? <laughs> this would be phenomenal. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt from debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you. What? There should be no poor among you. The ideal, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If there, is poor, if there is a poor man among your brothers, if there is any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year for canceling debts is near. Can you advance that for me? So that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to, to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. Here we go. Verse 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Okay. So we've got a problem. 
The rule was supposed to eradicate the poor. There should be no poor among you. Verse 11, but the poor will always be in the land. If you go to the next slide, just one hit. So I think there's two meanings to this, and I think there's endless applications to why God says the poor will always be in the land. The first one, we can go to the first one. First point, right up there. Oh, a little too far. The first one is, and I'll just say, we don't have to put it up there. God knew, God knew that we would never be able to eradicate the poor. He knew that in, 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 in our best efforts, we would never be able to completely do due to our fallen nature. So this has a lot of actual foreshadowing. Like, so how many of us here can cleanse our own souls? How many of us here can make ourselves sinless? None of us. That's okay. You can leave it on the Proverbs one. That's fine. You can leave it on the Proverbs one. Um, none of us can. And so when he says... There should be no poor among you. He almost says this also with our sin. You should not sin. You should not do bad things. But can you actually make yourself not do all the bad things? No. And so this is what we would call eternal foreshadowing about how it almost speaks to the poverty of our hearts when he talks about the poverty in the world, how it's always going to be there due to the fallen nature. So what do you need in order to fulfill it? The same thing we need in order to fulfill our souls. God. The poor will always be among you. Second reason, second reason the poor are always going to be among you is because God knew, God knew, and this is what we're going to unpack today, which is really exciting. God knew that the poor, and I'll say the orphans and the widows, because we can, we can kind of group, and, and the distressed, we can kind of group those people together. He knew that they would end up saving us. We wouldn't end up saving them. He knew that it was in our best interest that we serve the poor, not in the poor's best interest. And that's the exciting part. That's what we get to unpack today. But before we unpack that, let's just take a quick view. And this is Proverbs. The Bible stance on the poor. It's not just this one phrase. It's not just this one passage. We can go quickly through the Proverbs. Proverbs was written by, most of Proverbs were written by King Solomon. King Solomon was like the wisest guy to ever walk the earth nations everywhere would listen to whatever King Solomon said, and it was pure and it was right. And boy, is our world crying for a leader like that now. It's crying out for a leader like that. But that was Solomon. Like Solomon was so wise. And this is what he says about the poor. Quick view. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Next slide. And James, James chimes in, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? 
And James 1, 27, a very famous verse, religion that, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, it's not just one place. The Bible stands on the poor is that we absolutely should help. Now, we have a problem. We have a problem. And at this point, you're probably thinking two thoughts. First one I want to get rid of if you're thinking this, guilt and shame. A lot of times when we talk about the poor, we get a lot of guilt and shame, like I should do more. And we feel guilty, and we feel guilty into it. And I want to say that God's strategy for handling problems in our world was never, ever about guilt and shame. I can prove it. So when Jesus was here on the earth, he was about to leave, and he's talking to the disciples, and he goes, hey guys, so I'm getting out of here, and he's washing their feet. I'm getting out of here, I'm going to go, and the disciples start freaking out. Like, whoa, 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 the weight of spirituality cannot fall on our shoulders. Like, we want you to give us a plan. What is the plan? Like, what are you going to do? And Jesus is like, hey, it's easy. Y'all just need to love one another like I've loved you. Now, at this point, I'm like, okay, God, Jesus, okay, you created the Adam, right? You have complexity built into you. You are a creative God, and this is your plan. Love one another as I have loved you. That's simple. That's not complex. That's not, it's probably hard. And so the disciples did. And that's why we're standing here today. That's why I'm standing here. That's why we're here today. 2,000 plus years later, did it work? It worked. God's strategy for eradicating the poor is the same. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of shame. It's out of love. And so if you have guilt and shame, you just need to, you need to table that, you need to shoulder that. That's not where we're headed today. That is not where we're headed. Second thing you probably thought is when I say the poor, and I say the orphans, and I say the widows, and I say the distressed, we instantly get this thought of this huge, big problem that is global, and we get probably numbers are popping in our heads of millions and thousands, and ah, it's so stomachly huge. And Jesus wasn't interested in one person or a group of people fixing a global problem. In fact, Jesus shrunk the problem all the way down, and he goes, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And they said, who is your neighbor? And then we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And really, really, it was every man, the man goes out, he's beaten, the thieves steal everything, he's left beaten, bruised, and naked, and people pass by. And some people just chose to ignore him. And the Good Samaritan says, no, I, I'm going to take you in. I'm going to pay for you. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to love you. Every man that passed the guy who was beaten, bruised, was his neighbor. Those who didn't pass him were kind of off the hook. Like they, they, they weren't a neighbor to him in that moment. So the problems that we can't touch, the problems that we can't be, that's not what we're after. That's not what God was after. God was after us loving our Neighbor, people in our world, and these people actually exist in our world. So I want, I, we're going to shrink the problem. No shame, no guilt. And so we know that the Bible wants us to take care of the poor, but just that is really not enough. 
It's not enough for me. If you tell me what to do, unless you're my boss, I mean, I really need a compelling why. Why should I do this? We today in our society need a compelling why. Thankfully, rejoicefully, I feel like the scriptures are full of compelling whys to do what it says. And so we need a white hot why. If you go to the next slide. Try the remote. Oh, let's try it. Yay. Okay, I got my remote back. It's good. All right. We need our white hot why. So our white hot why, it is... I'm missing some slides. Okay. Um, first one is your happiness. Your happiness is at stake. It is intricately, intimately linked to the poor, the orphans, the distressed, and the widows. See, here, so here's how we are tempted to think about our happiness. We think if we could just achieve, if I could just acquire, if I could just look like, I would be happy. This is my problem. This is your problem. This is humanity's problem. And we do something um, of, 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 of this complex idea of, okay, I like his salary. That would be nice. Um, I'll take her waistline. That would be great. Uh, what about her car? That would be awesome. Their kid's attitude would be great. And so we do this composite view of what we think it's going to take to make us happy. I do this. You probably do this, although maybe you don't. And we put it all together and say, if, if it was just a higher salary, if it was just a house I owned, if it was just a car that worked, if it was just a kid that behaved, I would be happy. And I call it the Fisher Wish story. And tons of people come to me and tell me all this. This is what I'm looking for. Nick, pray for me. If I get this, I will be set. If I get this, everything will be fixed. And every time it happens, I get the biggest smile on my face. And I get so excited. I say, okay, we're going to pray for that. And we pray. I say, Lord, if it's your will, you would send this to this person. They would get this job or this thing or this person or this spouse or this boyfriend, this girlfriend or whatever. And God so often actually gives the person what they asked for. And then I get even happier when I figure out that they got what they're asking for, and I go back to them and I say, man, right when they get it, how, oh yeah, you fished your wish, man. You hit the jackpot. You got exactly what you asked for. You should be beaming right now. And they're like, yeah, I am. I'm like, oh, that's great. And I walk away, and I already know what's going to happen. And usually the descend is faster than it was before, and I come back weeks after, and I'm not happy. But I know what happened. They're not happy. They're even less happy than they were before because they thought that a job, a thing, a person, a way they look, a social status was going to make them happy. But it wasn't. The Bible actually tells us, and if we want to go, um, actually open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in chapter 5 for a little bit. So, um, oh, you want to hear my fish of the wish story? You want to hear mine? I have them all the time. I think it all the time, and I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. Two and a half years ago, I, um, I signed up here, became a pastor here, and was a program coordinator at Christ. I had two jobs, 
And for two years, you know what I told God? I said, God, if you could just figure out how to get me one job, I would be happy. I promise you I'd be happier. I'm happy now, but I promise you I'd be happier because I could just laser-like focus. And for two years, I said, God, I know that's wrong. So at the beginning of this year, I said, God, could you just please, could you just please, please, please change my mind and my heart because I know this is wrong. I know I won't be happier with one job. I know I'll be happier if I give what I should give to you. And so this year, five, five pastors came to me and said, you have impacted our church in a way you could never have imagined because of your influence in foster care and your influence in the church. And we just want to thank you. And after that, I said, Lord, thank you. My heart has changed. I love these two jobs. It's amazing. And he's probably going to take them away now. He's probably going to give me one job. <laughs> it's fine. That's usually how it works. Um, so, but this idea of, of, of being happy, about, we think it, it is a thing. And happiness is no thing. Well, little Dr. Seuss, happiness is no thing. Happiness is probably going to involve... Happiness is probably going to involve a who or two to pour into. Happiness is probably going to involve a who or two to pour into. Straight from Dr. Seuss, I added a little bit, but a who or two to pour into. There is 100 one another's in the Bible. 100. Love one another. Care for one another. Pray for one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be there for one another. Give to one another. Listen to one another. Talk with one another. Eat with one another. There's 100 one another's in the Bible. Your happiness is linked to a who or two you can pour into. Your happiness is linked to a who or two you can pour into. And a lot of you are probably saying, okay, great. So I have some kids, I have a wife, I have some friends, I'm going to pour into them. Okay, I'm going to suggest that's good. You should definitely do that. A true eruption of joy and peace and satisfaction actually comes when we love people who don't have the possibility to love us back the way we love them. And we can read about it. Don't trust me. All right, Matthew 5. Uh, go to verse 44. Doo -doo -doo. Okay, Matthew 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? God's politicians do that. They love the people that love them. They love them back. He's saying, don't even the, 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 the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, loving your enemy, loving those who persecute you. Okay, some of us in the room are saying, Nick, does that mean like I need a ton of enemies? Like I don't have a ton of enemies. I don't really think I'm being persecuted. I mean, I could probably make something up here. No, back then, persecution and enemies was a big thing. I don't expect you guys to say, okay, I have like 20 enemies. I mean, some of you might have that problem, but most of you probably don't have that problem. What he's saying is the enemies and the persecuted, if you love them, they will not love you back the way that you love them. And in that, your theology becomes perfect. And we do have people in our world that when we love them, we know that they could never return that love to us. And it's some of the most impactful moments 
in our lives when we do that. That changes us. That's for us. That's for our redemption. Not for theirs. Um, second thing, happiness. Happiness is going to include a who or two to pour into. You are getting in the way of your happiness. Turn with me to Galatians 5, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 17. Mike talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit of the law, you are not under the law. The, verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. I'm going to list them really quick. Are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. The you that says, if only I had, if only I acquired, if only I looked like, I would be happy, is called the sinful nature. And what's happening is that, the worst thing that happened is that you get them because these, all these things have huge appetites. And the more that you feed them, the bigger the appetite gets, and you're soon going to get so upset and so angry because you're not going to be able to satisfy that appetite. And so you can't make you happy unless you figure out how to take you out of the equation. And I had it on a slide, and I must have, have lost the slide when I put it up there. But you can't make you happy unless you figure out how to take you out of the equation. Your sinful nature has got to go. And you have to know that is wrong. So um, our, next, our next white hot why, it's linked, intimately linked to our happiness. Next one is it's wrapped up in our identity. God saw a mess, and he didn't run away from it. He ran towards it. He expects us as children of God to run towards mess, not away from it. That's our gospel identity. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, this is for you. If you're not a follower, if you're not a believer of Christ, this is extra. This is just for those claiming to follow and believe in Jesus Christ. He saw the mess and he goes, I want, I'm invested in making that better. I'm going towards it. We were made in his image. It's wrapped up in our identity. We were made, we were designed to see messes and to go towards them. Our sinful nature will pull us away and put us towards comfort. Our spirit nature will send us into the mess to make it better. It's wrapped up in our identity. One of the best ways to grow as a disciple. One of the best ways to grow as a disciple. When you are loving the poor, when you're loving the widows, when you're loving the orphans, when you're loving those in distress, and lots of you are doing it in this room. This at all isn't a slap on the hand. Lots of you in this room are doing it. When you're doing it, is it easy? Who would say it's easy? Who would just sign up for that and say, yep, it's easy? 
Oh, I was hoping one or two. I'd give you more. But um, It's not easy. When you're loving the distressed, you're loving the poor, you're loving the widow, you're loving the orphan, it is hard. You come face to face with your own insecurities. You come face to face with your own control issues. You come face to face with your own patient issues, your own money issues. You come face to face with a lot of issues just kind of stir up and come out. And God says, this is great. Now we can work on them. I always wondered why perfect theology was something that was never going to go away. It's perfect theology to love widows and orphans, but uh, they'll never go away. I believe it's one of his highest rated growth engines for disciples. One of the highest growth factors for disciples is loving those in distress. And so it's great. Um, So before we go, though, I do want to give you some walkaways. How do we respond? This is the big thing. We shrink the problem. It can't be so big that we're trying to fix it globally, that we're trying to start organizations, that we're trying um, to do something huge and beyond our measure. I think each and every one of you should be able to respond, not that you need to respond, because I want you to respond out of love, um, not out of guilt and shame, but every one of you should be able to respond today to somebody in distress, a poor widow or orphan, today, to show them love. So, nobody can do everything. No one person can do everything. But everybody absolutely can do something. In fact, everybody absolutely should do something. If turn with me to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were designed for it. You were designed to go out and do good works. Not only were you designed for it, he's got some lined up for you. And yet something halts us to say, well, I can't fix the problem. You're not supposed to fix the problem. God's going to fix the problem, but we're all supposed to help. Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 12, you don't have to turn there, talks about we are one body. Everyone has a part to play. When I say help the poor, what's the first thing? Pops in your mind. First thing, help the poor. Money. Money. Someone said over here, money. First thing, pops in your mind. When I say uh, help foster care, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? First way to help foster care. Hmm? Adoption. Adoption. Right there. Okay. These are kind of pie-in-the-sky ideas. If you can give money, if you can adopt, you should. However, I'm going to look at all of you and say that most of you should probably not adopt, and that's not a dig on you guys. I'm just saying, most people, we shouldn't tell the whole world to go take children into their home. It's not going to fix the problem. And a lot of them come back to me at my organization because people took them that weren't ready to take children. But every, what if I told you every single one of you today could impact foster care? And you don't even have to do that much different. Somebody here could write a letter. Somebody here, all of you can pray. Somebody here could listen. Somebody here could cook a meal. Somebody here could give transportation. Somebody here could fix a car of someone doing foster care that, that, that doesn't know how to fix cars, could do it for free. Somebody here could, do, uh, uh, could clean a house, talk on a phone, prepare a meal. And some, yeah, some can give money. And yeah, some, some can take kids in their home. But everybody can do something. Everybody should do something for those in distress, but not everybody should do the same thing. And when a collective group 
decides to all do something, lives change. Whole lives and families change. When you find out all that you can do, that's all that you should do. Again, it was on a slide. I thought, man, I'm so witty. I'm going to put this up on a slide. And God's like, you're dumb. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it down. Um, when you find out all that you should do, that is all that you should do. When you find out all that you should do, that's all that you should do. Don't think that you have to do everything that everyone else is doing. There is something uniquely specific about you that you can do. And I would love, and there's leaders here that would love to help you figure that out, but I believe that is where you find your happiness, a story, and then we're gone. So, two years ago, um, Diane came to me. And Diane, Diane, uh, Diane Coleman, she's with us. She, uh, she was separated. She was a single mom. She was separated uh, from her son when he was very young, less than a year old. Two years ago, Brandon was 11, and she came to me and she said, Nick, I just got done preaching. I don't even know about what. And she said, I am getting him back. Will you help me? So the collective whole of Crossroads did whatever we could. We didn't honestly do much. We just did whatever we could. And one year ago, she said, he's coming back home to me. I'm going to get my son back after 12 years. And this Friday marks one year that Brandon has been in her home. And when I see her determination, we talk just about weekly. She takes every last bit of advice. She does everything she can to keep him. I'm reminded of my father's determination to come after me, to do everything he can to pursue me, to do everything he can to reunify with me. And Diane's story is a reflection of what God wants to do for us. When God said, if you help the least of these, you are helping me. He puts himself in the least of these. If God is in the least of these, don't you think we belong there too? Don't you think that we help because we're that person too? We're impoverished. Our riches mean nothing. Without God, without this Father that pursues us, our riches mean nothing. And so Diane, Diane is a huge, um, huge win, a huge, huge win that we're praising and that we're celebrating. If you see Diane, congratulate her, encourage her. It'll be one year with Brain in her home. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You don't leave us where we're at. Thank you so much that you know better than us God, we need you to move. We need you to move on our hearts. Because I, I heard what your word said, but doing it is a different thing. I don't get points for listening. My soul doesn't change just because I know something. God, I'm going to need you to help me. I'm going to need you to help them. God, would your spirit move in the caverns of our heart? Would you speak softly to us today about who we are? About what we can do? About how we can help? 
about what you're doing for us, God, would you move us to action? And the, the, the crazy part about this, God, is it's for us. It's not for you. It's not for them. It's for us. This is what's best for us. And there's no way that truth sinks in unless your spirit's at work. And God, so I'm asking and inviting your spirit to come and speak to our hearts today. In your powerful name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.